is God? Is there a God? I mean, you know, when folks are distraught, they ask these questions or have those doubts, especially when they are in, in pain or in suffering and don't know where to go or what to do. Uh, we're going to talk about maybe where is God and who Re- is God. And reasons for God. Yeah. And faith in science. Yeah. Uh, trying to stir up the uh, some evidence for God. People think that they're split between God and science, and we're going to try and work through a memory aid called Jumped, and hopefully the jump into faith. Jump into faith. <laughs> Watch. Welcome to the St. Joseph Radio Presents live program broadcasting to you from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. The program that for over 30 years has brought you eloquent speakers from across the globe to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. Our program covers a variety of topics relating to current issues and occurrences in our daily lives. Now, with the aid of technology, we are able to bring the gospel message to the four corners of the world, where Christ himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. It is our hope at St. Joseph Radio that through these programs, we can help evangelize the world and change one soul at a time. Now, here is your host to introduce today's guest and topic. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, This is Peter Karutz. I'm your host today, and we are live in studio with Sean Miller. How are you, Sean? Good day. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about God today, I think, huh? Reasons for God. Reasons for God. There we are. Reasons for God, part two. Um, We keep calling it tilling the soil. Why are we calling it tilling the soil? Well, before you kind of plant the seeds of faith, you have to kind of really deal with the mindset of the person you're working with. So oftentimes people think that faith and science and faith and reason are on opposite sides. So this is going to be just to kind of follow up to kind of speak about that issue. Is there so-called evidence for God? We're talking about reasons, arguments, proofs. And so this is kind of like uh, following from what we spoke about last time about starting to ask the big questions. What about if if is there is life absurd with God? Is it is it good with God? So just kind of get people to think about the big questions. That's yeah. what we're going to do. So and I'm it gonna... is a big question. And it, we uh, and the bigger question is, who says the opening prayer? Oh, uh, it's you, man. I'll do it. Name All the right. Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint these words for who, all those who listen to this today and into the future. You know where we're at. You know what we need. We just pray that you can add light to our minds and strength to our wills. We ask this through Christ our Lord and King. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> hey, you know, another reason why we're doing this is because we're really trying to be prepared and prepare ourselves. You know, I don't know how many times you all have been confronted with people who have uh, doubts about God or, or truly just are running away mm-hmm. from God. And uh, l- let's remember that usually that's uh, rooted in some sort of hurt, mm-hmm. right? So w- when, we, when we have those circumstances, let's just embrace them, you know, just bring the love of Christ to them and, and they won't even know what hit them, mm-hmm. right? Because there is that inner longing in all of us to find God and to know him. I mean, people's all over the world, not attached to Christianity or exposed to Judaism at all, they're all seeking God, right? 
it's part of us. It's part of who we are. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, it's funny. I have here on my notes in the beginning, like, um, I am a director of religious education. Yes, then, you are. DRE. I, 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 I joke, it'd be better if I would say I was a director of religious knowledge, D-O-R-K. Ah, oops. Uh, dork. And uh, fool for Christ, dork for the Lord. But I like the term knowledge because, you know, ultimately we're made to know. Right. We all know that it, we hate secrets kept from us because we long to know. So, like, the purpose of life is to know, love, and serve God, et cetera. But, like, knowledge is a term, like, if you look at its Latin root, we get the word science it's from scientia, which means to know. Oh, is that right? So, like, you know, really, science is knowledge. And unfortunately, science has been hijacked to mean the empirical, what can I put under a microscope? you know, purpose for learning things. And so really, we're going to be talking about knowledge in terms of, of what the faith presents in, in reasons, but its its goal is uh, really intimacy, intimacy with, with God, to really know somebody. You know, it says that Adam knew Eve and she conceived, <laughs> you know, so back then they understood knowledge in its more fuller intimate sense. But I want to speak to that later on about this whole view of kind of faith and science, because everybody thinks, you know, it seems the cultural impression is that faith is emotional, it's it's kind of, you know, subjective, and whereas science is data, it's hard, it's it's objective, and, you know, it's like, why we put that split in our society, it's really sad. So, so what I'm going to do real here is just to kind of uh, do a quick summary of last time, just to kind of get us up to speed. So what we're doing is... So we're thinking about tilling some soil. So we till some soil to plant some seeds. So we said the best way to to start to till soil in our day and age is to have people ask questions. So we said barbecue, begin asking really big questions, right? So it's like, what are the big questions? Well, barbecue, glue, God, life, universe, everything. Okay, so the big questions are about God, life, universe, everything. And uh, so the quest begins with questions. Remember that old show, Johnny Quest, right? Well, this is a Shawnee Quest. I've went through this whole thing my own self. I got my degree in philosophy, and I shared last time that like, I got this picture of uh, four or five people in a philosophy class, and they all were reading Plato, where, and then I put a, a caption for Sean, and that kid had Play-Doh. Uh. So we weren't really uh, raised to kind of think this way. It was all kind of assumed you would just kind of get by osmosis kind of the cultural way, but it's like I think today... You know, we really got to get back to getting into these big questions. So I want to start off with a little short story of a child who asked her mom some <laughs> one of the biggest questions. So she says, a little girl goes up to her mom and she says, Mom, where do we all come from? And the mother answered, well, honey, you know how at Mass we say, God is the Father Almighty and the creator of all things. Before all time and space and creation, there was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love itself. His desire to love overflowed into all of what we call the universe, preparing for his greatest work of creation, human beings, us, you. God made the first human beings in his own image and likeness, and from them, all of us, we are linked together by God's love in one great big family. Well, later that night, she asked her father the same question. The father said, well, I think in the beginning there was a bunch of slime that got hit by some kind of electricity and caused life to start. After a period of time and chance, the stuff in the slime began to get bigger. Eventually, the slime turned into animals, and one of those animals was a monkey. From the monkeys, the human race came, and here we are all today. The confused girl returned to her mom and said, Mom, I don't understand. You told me the human race was created in love by God, while Dad said that we came from a bunch of slime that turned into monkeys and then into us. The mother answered, Well, honey, it's very simple. I told you about my side of the family while your father told you about his. 
that's good. Oh. No, but I like those parallels. It's, it's like, you know, really, these questions of origins are huge. You know, like, are we in the kingdom of God or the planet of the apes? You know, am I in the image of the king of kings or of King Kong? I mean, am I more able to act like a monk or a monkey? You know, and so it's like, I think we got to spend time pondering these things and really thinking about, you know, who am I? Where am I going? How did I get there? How does this all fit together? This uh, Blaise Pascal, who I'm going to speak about in a second, he was a philosopher, and uh, he said that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. So talk about the sound of silence, you know, Simon and Garfunkel. We need some silence to kind of ponder these things, because if we don't know kind of you know, who we are, where we're going, how to get there, then, you know, I think we're just going to be a grab bag of emotions and desires like a little kid wanting a bucket of toys, cookies, and pacifiers to satisfy his urges. And you see a lot of that today with massive um, violence, disruption, distractions. We spoke last time about all these weapons of mass distraction that cause us from thinking. So uh, the big question, of course, is about God, his reality. So does it make a difference? Yeah, massively. Like Shakespeare said, either life is full of sound and fury signifying nothing, and we are all on a stage ad-libbing lines in a play that nobody wrote, or else there is a mind behind it all. Either there is some sort of supreme being or there isn't. So these questions are got to be uh, key just for sanity's mm-hmm. sake. Because, I mean, we can be uh, two people living in totally different realities. I mean, if you believe that there's a God and, um, and, and your neighbor doesn't, then what does that mean about the moral questions, about an objective order? You know, like they say, if there is no God, everything is permitted. Cheston said the problem of disbelieving in God is not that a man ends up believing in nothing. It's much worse. He be- ends up believing anything. So the kicker is, is to try and be, uh, live in the same reality. And, you know, it's wild. You think back to like 1531 at the time of the Protestant Reformation. That was also something going on in the culture with the Aztec civilization, right? These were folks who were cannibals. And I always use the image like, or the line, does it matter if you love your neighbor or you eat your neighbor? I mean, that's a question of, of God and morality, you know? And it's like, if we're not in the same universe... And I'm side to side with you, then who's to kind of govern, you know, both in time and in eternity, the sense of, of right and wrong? So for us, what propels us to answer the question really is the fact of, of death, right? You know, like every time we write a funeral, we should be thinking about, okay, this person's life ended here. What does that say to my life? And then yeah. where am I going? So like your life only makes sense if you know kind of where you're going. Well, we know that the it's going to end someday. So it's like, how do I live this life? There's a great line, memento mori, remember your death. My son just got a uh, hoodie that he wears with this, got a picture of a skull on it and it says that line. Very it's appropriate a, it, it's this a great, time of year. Well, it's a great line for, uh, you know, Lent and, and particularly, like I always have this skull that I break out. Like I, I got, I bought one of these, you know, skulls or whatever. It's, it's a fake one, but I bought it and I, for Lent, I bring it out and I have the line, you know, Genesis 319, remember man, you are dust and the dust yeah. you shall return. Yeah. So it's always good to always kind of think about that reality. So that's kind of what we spoke about last time. And then we, we mentioned this guy named William Lane Craig. He has a great talk. Uh, he does a lot of debates against atheists. He's, his site is reasonablefaith.org. And he kind of talks about the absurdity of life without God. And he tries to lay out the case. This is what we call the human predicament that Blaise Pascal spoke about to say that, you know, rather than try and, uh, you know, prove all these things to people, just ask them some questions about life. Let's say there is no God. 
okay, then, then, then what are you? You know, where did you come from? So he says, okay, on a strictly materialistic, random chance, evolutionary worldview, here you are. You are the blind and arbitrary product of time, chance, and natural forces. You're a mere grab bag of atomic particles, a conglomeration of genetic substance. You exist on a tiny planet in a minute solar system in an empty corner of a meaningless universe. You are a purely biological entity, different only in degree, but not in kind from a microbe, virus, or amoeba. You have no essence beyond your body, and at death you will cease to exist entirely. In short, you came from nothing and are going nowhere. So there's no ultimate meaning, no ultimate value, no ultimate purpose, ultimate without God. You can try and create your meaning on this life and say, well, I live a meaningful life. Yeah, you can create all kinds of things. We're trying to do that all the time and say, well, I want to be this. I am this. I am a man. I am a woman. I am a dog. I am a cat. Okay, you can create that, but it's a, it's a dream world. you know. So you think about just from ultimate meaning, like look at all the time a person devotes developing their craft or their hobby or their education. It's no ultimate purpose behind that. Okay, that's nice. You did a few good works, maybe made a scientific contribution. Who cares? You know, oh, there's no ultimate value. So really, whether you lived as a um, Stalin or as a Mother Teresa, it doesn't really matter. So basically, your life is not any really objectively different than a a roadkill. I mean, a cosmic roadkill. That's a pretty thing to kind of ponder, but to put that before someone's uh, face and say, look at the opportunity or the alternatives here. You know, either there is an order, a design, a plan, a purpose, all these drives that, that point to something beyond, or there isn't. So is death a door or is it a hole? So that's what kind of propels us to begin to think. So I think it's good to ask those questions because, again, like I said, as Dostoevsky said, if there is no no God, then anything is Who permitted. Cares? Yeah. I mean, anything is permitted. Do you want to live in that world where then people don't live by conscience, but they have to live by cops? But ultimately, the cops are there just to do whatever they want to. It's because a real strict, I mean, an atheist regime, we've seen that. And yet we all act like, well, it's no big deal what you believe. I mean, I listened to this debate on, um, you know, these this atheist and a believer, and then the people were just, you know, like clapping. I said, yay, there's no God. Woo! Every time the atheist made the point, like, this is wonderful. I'm like, well, have you really thought through that? <laughs> you know? So anyways, what I want to say is that um, we have in the history of belief <laughs> massive reasons, evidence, uh, insights, signs for the living presence of, of, of God, both as creator, as redeemer, and as sanctifier. So we're going to be talking about kind of in this part two about proofs, proving things, uh, reasons, arguments. You know, people often use words like arguments and evidence, but if it suits you better, you might think of these simply as kind of good clues, good reasons. These are not like mathematical, airtight, scientifically tested proofs. It's they're in the terms of, of arguments, logic, and so forth. Like a, you've, you've heard like it says the proof is in the pudding. Well, that assumes because if you taste it, you taste it if it's good or if it isn't. But what about almost everything we believe in that we can't put under the taste test, right? Love, joy, courage, honor, goodness, hope, faith, virtue. Are they all nonsense because they're nonsensed? And that's what I think the perception is in the world right now. Is it like that's just all emotional, subjective. But let's get to the data. 
Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But Let's if we're at, but if we have these profound questions and we ask a fish, do we really <laughs> expect an intelligent answer? But if that's all we are is fish brain, then who cares? But let me tell you what this is. This is St. Joseph Radio presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your host Peter Krutz, and this is Sean Miller, and we are talking about reasons for God. Part two. Yeah, I mean, just think about like logic. A equals B, B equals C, A equals C, right? So like that's a logical formula that you just kind of quote proven something, but you can't put that under a microscope. So it's a logical thing. Think about just the historical question by deduction. So how do you know your great, 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 great grandpa exists when there's no historical record, there's no tombstone, you've got no records from any genealogical thing. So like, how do you know for sure, confident, that you can prove that he existed. I'm living and breathing. You're looking in the mirror. Yeah. You know, so like there are other things besides that. So we got to just kind of kind of put our minds there. So like mm-hmm. uh, in the catechism it says that it says the person who seeks God discovers certain ways of coming to know him. They're also called proofs for the existence of God, not in the sense of proofs of the natural sciences, but rather in the sense of converging and convincing arguments. So that's what we're going to be kind of speaking about here. So that we believe, first of all, we all have this innate desire I think for God, if we're really honest, it's it's there from the beginning. We believe it's planted naturally. It's it's written by God in in the human heart. So He kind of draws us to Himself in this magnetic way. But He's not going to compel us against His will. And like, there's a whole great. I love this topic. It's called the hiddenness of God. Why does God re, you know remain hidden? Why not just say, "Here I am, love me." You know. So it's like Peter Crape gives a great answer. He says God gives us just enough light to make our faith reasonable, but just enough darkness to make it free. So that if we really saw God, it would be like the magnet, you know, if, if God really showed himself as he is, we would be magnetically drawn like a superpowered magnet. We were just this, you know, piece of metal. We'd be drawn him like that. But he puts this barrier of distance. Just think about any kind of a magnetic pull. Like if you put a magnet under a table and you put some kind of a ball, you can kind of cause it to move there. So it's like there's this distance between us and God we call in the human life that we're drawn, but we're not compelled. So this hiddenness of God, it's like we're made to see and search and follow clues. We have to hunt that game, so to speak, if we want to get the animal. So it's like a lover pursuing the beloved. You know, it's like he's not just going to say, here I am, jump into my arms. Like, we got to do some work. But we all know that in this game of hide and seek, we can kind of sometimes say, I ain't playing the game. I don't like the game. I don't want this game, you know? So like we'll say, first of all, this life is for test, for trial, for virtue. I mean, we're going to I mean, we're actually in the process of determining our eternal reward by how we live. We're going to be judged upon, you know, the way that we live this life. But we can reject that call, right? So, this is time for trial. The next life is for vision. We'll kind of see how it all plays out. But um, there's a great line in the catechism that says, "This call to God, it can be rejected." Through different causes, a revolt against evil in the world, like what you said in the beginning, how can God allow this suffering to exist? Religious ignorance or indifference, cares and riches of the world, scandal of bad example on the part of believers, currents of thought hostile to religion, finally that attitude of sinful man which makes him hide from God out of fear and flee his call. So this is really interesting. Like uh, Fulton Sheen says that after the fall, what do you see? Adam and Eve there hiding. You know, it says... And he said, ever since the days of Adam, man has been hiding from God and saying God is hard to find. Now, there's something interesting for us to ponder. Why am I afraid to really answer some of these big questions? Well, I know when I was a kid growing up, you're like, 
boy, the more I know about God, the more it's going to be like a divine traffic cop or policeman making me frustrated that I can't do what I want to do. And what if I'm going to do these little sneaky, sinful things? So it's kind of like we kind of hide from like a parent or like a policeman. I don't want to get known. But you're like, wow, is that your view of God? Is that that distorted? Is it, you know, do you just live solely out of fear of being caught? Is your whole life a thou shalt not? You know, and you just want to taste to see the dark side. But, you know, there can be, if you have that kind of fear, then you don't want to be found out, right? Darkness doesn't want to come into the light. That's that's in our nature, too. So there can be such a thing as like a, a willful spiritual blindness, right? Imagine someone refusing to open their eyes and then complaining that it's too dark to see. So it can be the case that we don't want God to be real. We don't want God to be there as someone that we have to be accountable to. Like... Um, Recently, I was I uh, listened to this debate. It was um, Christopher Hitchens and Peter Hitchens is his brother. Christopher Hitchens, you might know, he's like a well-known atheist, but people often don't know that his brother is a well-known believer, and they actually debated each other, and that there was this debate online. It was at Oxford University, I, I think, and, and he lays out the case to say, you know, yeah, you know, sometimes believers or unbelievers, they don't want justice. They don't want to be known, and he, and he kind of calls them out, this sense of that you're, you're afraid of accountability. So sure, I can try and rationalize some worldview to say, yeah, this kind of helps back up the fact that I don't ever have to answer anybody but myself. you know. And then he even mentioned in the talk this guy named Thomas Nagel, who's uh, an atheist philosopher, who's just honest. He said that, uh, you know, I, I want atheism to be true. He says, but I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So he was just being candid. You know, now the question becomes, why wouldn't you want there to be some ultimate divine being? But, well, if you don't want accountability, you can kind of see it. You know, so the, the thing is this, to always kind of question our own psychological motives and like, what am I afraid of? You know, um, so I kind of put this in this acronym selfish, right? This is what we just spoke about. So this is what makes people re- maybe revolt or not look into the question. Sin, evil in the world, laziness, SEL, fear of change, ignorance of God, scandals of believers and hostile attitudes and currents of, of thought. But if you want to go in the, uh, against the grain of selfish, the catechism speaks about being this certain kind of fish. Like it says that you got to use every effort of intellect and will. So I have this acronym, FISH, fortitude, intellectual effort, sound will, and a heart that's upright. In other words, we got to be willing to say, all right, I got doubts. Doubts are hunger pains. Am I going to try and study them? Or am I just going to say, ah, you know, it's probably all a joke. You know, I heard about some... Uh, Bishop one time, he had slaves. How could the church allow that stupidity? I heard about a priest that abused boys. Yeah, it's all a bunch of joke, you know. You can kind of hear scandals or things and just say, I reject the whole works. It's like I could say, yeah, I heard about one of Jesus' followers. He used to lie and cheat and steal. In fact, he committed suicide. What a joke on that whole religious thing. Yeah, that's called Judas, right? There's always going to be scandal, but the thing is that are you going to let that kind of uh, mar your whole image of the big picture? So we'll say that like one of the biggest things that, you know, darkens the intellect and weakens the will in this resolve is original sin. You know, they say there's the two tracks, reason and revelation, you know, the railroad tracks, right? These are the two ways we kind of come to know God. But sometimes we can get off track, and that's what original sin did. I mean, we truly jump the tracks. And so it makes us not see things rightly. 
you know, and we got to know that we got to fight that. So there's errors in our education. There's errors in what we think. There's errors in the political system, right? So, I mean, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. So we're all cracked eggs. So we we got to know those things. And, and this is a great line in the catechism too. Number 37, it says, the human mind is hampered in the attaining of the truths of God, not only by the impact of the senses and the imagination, but also by disordered appetites, which are the consequences of original sin. So it happens that men in such matters easily persuade themselves that what they would not like to be true is false, or at least doubtful. Like you've heard the line, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> But I love this guy. I got a picture of this guy. He's holding a sign. He says, religion, because thinking is hard. You know, I'm like, so he's at one of these atheist conventions. And I'm like, so I put in the caption, rationalizing my thinking and my behavior because religion is hard. You know? So I think people can, can go the other way around. They say that we're opposed to thinking. I'm thinking, I'm thinking well, it could be the other way around. You're, you're opposed to really living. It, it takes work and virtue to be a moral being. You know, you, you know, Christ was from the dead. We got to get out of bed. Even just going to Sunday mass, that can be too hard for some people or whatever. Because heaven forbid, I give up my sacred time when I could be, you know, shopping or golfing. But, but, um, anyways, in this whole debate, I think sometimes we forget about the level of sin that's involved because we think it's all a rational issue. But you know, like think about the seven deadly sins. You know, pride, lust, avarice, gluttony, unjust anger, envy, and sloth the plagues of sin. Just look at pride for their, you know, like that's kind of original sin 101. I will determine what's right and wrong. I make my own rules. You're not the boss of me. So boy, that is a big wedge to say, I don't want some cosmic boss of me. I will determine what's right and wrong. And then think about lust. I don't give, I take, I use. I don't want someone making me accountable for my sexual choices and thoughts. How dare anybody get in my own private life? Avarice. I don't give. I don't be generous. I don't, I don't, you know, give to charities. I take. Then you go down the list of gluttony, right? I don't need to exercise self-control. I want to be out of control. Unjust anger. Why be kind and virtuous? I can hate if I want to hate. Envy, sloth, etc. So it's like, it's all those, am I in self-control or out of control? And we all know which is easier to be. I mean, it's much easier to be a ravaging, out-of-control monkey than somebody that's trying to be conformed to what's right to be. I mean, you know, what does the world more act like? It's like I said, a monk or a monkey. Are are, are you just a person that says, I'm going to maximize pleasure, minimize pain? Or am I somebody that's going to say, I'm I'm called to live a virtuous life in the image of God, of which I've been made, to become a lover, a giver, someone that shares and is charitable and so forth. So so we all know that that are the kind of the two options. So but, you know, in terms of the intellect, the church says, hey, bring it on. God made our minds in his image, and we've got this intellectual um, capacity, rational capacity. So like I said, the two tracks of reason and revelation. So we can dialogue and, and then discuss these issues. But again, it takes work. It takes time. It takes energy. Um, but for anybody that wants kind of a, a more of a thorough book, You've probably heard of the Handbook of Christian Apologetics by Peter Kraft and, oh, yeah, and Father Ronald Ticelli. So that's it, it's got 20 um, arguments for God's existence there. 20? 20 well, arguments. I thought that there could... were five, but <laughs> well, that was good. The, <laughs> that was Thomas Aquinas. So we're going to get into him a little bit next time. 
But um, so I try to put his <laughs> five arguments in a in a memory aid too. But these twenty are really good um, just to kind of work through and realize that uh, you know our faith is not just a warm fuzzy emotional. I wish it were so. You know, faith is based on uh, you know this rational grace builds on nature. It's it's a rational gift there too. It's it's revealed. But it's also rational, two tracks. And that's why we're doing this. You know, I I heard this old saying. It says, if I have a why, I can endure any what. You know, think of all the people who have done great things in this world. It's because they have a good understanding of what the reality is, what the truth is, and where I need to go or what there is in store for me. Will you go tell a friend and tell them to listen? Logaman with St. Joseph Radio with a great gift idea, a St. Benedict bracelet, a trendy accessory for men, women, and children that not only looks good on everyone's wrist, but is actually armor for the spiritual battlefield. This unique bracelet is handmade in Europe and contains 10 medals within the braided cord in the adult size and 7 medals in the children's size. On the front of each beautiful medal is St. Benedict holding a cross in his right hand, the object of his devotion. On the back of each medal is a cross. Surrounding the back of the medal and cross are the letters VRS. N M V S M Q L I V B in Latin reference, which translates, Be gone, Satan. Never tempt me with your vanities. What you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. And finally, located at the top is the word Pax, which means peace. All bracelets come packaged with an informational card and the St. Benedict blessing, which your local priest can administer. This gift is for everyone you love and care about, including yourself. Available from St. Joseph Radio, check the website at www.saintjosephradio.net. St. Joseph Catholic Radio is proud to announce the launch of SJEN-TV, the St. Joseph Evangelization Network. SJEN-TV is a premier online Catholic broadcasting network providing quality Catholic programming 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We have programming such as live studio interviews, St. Joe's Java speaker presentations, current Catholic issues, and the pro-life series. We're featuring the many talented speakers out of Orange County, California, and this Archdiocese of St. Louis, Missouri including Professor John Gresham, Father James Mason, Karen Nokemper, Rick Hollerick, Bill Federer, and many more. To review the program list, go to sjen.tv or on Roku, sjen.tv. All this programming is free, and we are welcoming sponsorship of new programs. Find out more at sjen.tv. Well, welcome back. This is St. Joseph Radio Presents, coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri, the Rome of the West. I'm your host, Peter Karutz. I'm here with Sean Miller. We're going to get right back into it. We're looking at the reasons for God, um, part two. Part two, yeah. So we kind of, we're speaking about proofs, faith, and reason, you know, and it's as, as we try to even articulate our, our faith, you know, it's it's not like we can just be, give an airtight argument to somebody. Like, just imagine if you were accused of a crime and you were innocent. But you know, you would have to try to prove to your to others that that you were innocent and not guilty, you know? But it's like even if you couldn't prove it to their satisfaction, you would still know. Right. <laughs> you know, so there's yeah. something about that too. So like I was listening to one um, debate one time and the and the and the priest was de- debating this woman and he's and she said to him, prove to me there's a God and I'll become a Christian. The priest responded, prove to me there isn't a God and I'll become an atheist. She says, I can't prove it. He said, then why do you spend so much time going around the country trying to prove there is no God? She said, I believe it. He said, well, you have faith. Uh, so so faith is believing without proof necessarily, but not without reason. So he, he, he gave like, um, you can't really strictly prove faith, but he goes, we, we exercise faith all the time. And he just, he kind of, he held up a can of pork and beans. He was like, why do you believe there's pork and beans in, in this can? Because you trust the label. 
right? And just think about everything we do every day, from a child jumping into its father's arms to shopping at the grocery store, picking up chicken noodle soup or a box of cereal, getting on an airplane, trusting what's in your medication bottle, you know, hearing someone's testimony. So we'll say faith, you know, it's the acceptance of the word of another, trusting that one knows what the other is saying and is honest in telling the truth. The basic motive of all faith is the authority or right to be believed of someone who is speaking. So it really comes down to, is the person who's telling you something, are they credible? And for all you people that just say, well, you know, I don't believe in this faith stuff. Well, you're, you have faith that your reason is even reason, reasoning reasonably. You have faith that what you are seeing in the objective world is actually truly interpreted properly by your senses. So you're exercising faith all the time, but you know, unfortunately, the kind of the cultural impre- impression is to make faith seem like it's just um, this subjective emotional thing, like without a, foundation at all. Right. There's a guy named Bertrand Russell. He sure. said, "Where there is evidence, no one speaks of faith." We do not speak of faith that two and two are four or that the earth is round. We only speak of faith when we wish to substitute emotion for evidence. That's just false. Yeah. And then, you know, like, so kind of one of his uh, successors today is this Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, I I watched, so he's an American astronomer who has popularized science with his books and and appearances on radio and television. And and I, I saw this interview. I thought this was very interesting. So he says, there is no evidence for God. And this is why religions are called faiths collectively, because you believe something in the absence of evidence. That's what it is. That's why it's called faith. Otherwise, we would call all religions evidence. <laughs> and I thought, you got to be kidding me. I mean, you really think that we believe solely on emotional appeal? Like, you know, in, in all the... You know, since 9-11, you've had this whole slew of atheists writing out there. They're really influencing society, you know, from Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett. They're called the Four Horsemen. And then, you know, they, they, they've got like this one meme that says, science flies you to the moon, religion into skyscrapers. You know, they're talking about Ooh. 9-11. Yeah. So they're taking like a an, an Islamic terrorist fundamentalist view that – is contrary to the belief system, but they're mocking it to some degree. So they, we kind of say, atheists say in science we, you know, in science we trust. Religion, see no evidence, hear no contradiction, speak no facts. And you're like, you know, that really is what is a term scientism, which basically tries to say, you know, again, like we said in the beginning, science means knowledge, but they've tried to limit science to this empirically verified thing. Well, obviously, if something is of spirit, you can't test it physically, you know, and most of everything we believe is spiritual, intellectual, right? Love, joy, honor, courage, you know, logic, history, whatever. So if we could return to uh, back to what science is, but basically the fallacy of scientism, it says that, you know, you should only believe in something that you can sense. So it's nonsense to believe in something nonsensed. But the very statement that science is the only avenue to truth is itself not, not scientific. It's rather a philosophical statement, you know? And there, there's all kinds of fallacies you just got to pay attention to. Like if someone says, you can never be sure, you say, are you sure about that? <laughs> there is no truth. Is that true? Yeah. There are absolutely no abs- absolutes. Absolutely. Yeah. If God knows the future, then we are not free. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> you know, so as always, they're self-contradictory. Right. Yeah. 
But unfortunately, like they say that they've done a survey. This has been a 16-year study where this guy talked about uh, where the youth have been, what's going to see, or how will a youth practice his faith. 70% say that they left the church because they saw that science and religion they thought were in conflict. So nearly, nearly all American youth associate science with evidence and proof, but associate religion with blind faith and private subjective opinion. Now, that's a very interesting thing to ponder. There was a movie years ago back in the 90s called Flatliners, you know, and their point was to try and, you know, have a near-death experience to see what's there, you know. And there's this one line, like, this guy says, why are you going to do this? Why are you going to risk your life? And he goes, basically, to see if there's anything out there beyond death. Philosophy failed. Religion failed. Now it's up to the physical science. I think mankind deserves to know. And then a great way of looking at this, I think, is like, could you imagine uh, – Let's say you're out at the beach. You got your child there. He's got his little plastic toy. He comes back. He lost it. So we're going to go back to the beach and find the plastic toy. What are we going to do? Our only tool we're going to have is a metal detector to try and find the plastic toy. Well, guess what? You're not going to find the plastic toy with a metal detector. But this is what scientism tries to do. It says this is the one tool we have. you know. And, it, and then the, if it doesn't register here, it's not real. Like you've heard the line, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. A nail yeah. And that's what's kind of going on with this, with this, you know, scientism. So none of us can be uh, helped but be tempted by scientism, right? We want proof so clear that we have no reason to doubt it, especially when it comes to matters of faith like Thomas. Our fingers itch for the chance to probe those nail holes. So there's absolutely no chance that you will get a conclusion so certain that you will have no occasion to doubt it. Nor can you hope, though we all do. That God's going to suddenly appear in your room and say, okay, here's proof. Here I am. He already tried that 2,000 years ago with mixed success. So like uh, Bishop Barron wrote a book, and it's called Light from Light. And it, it really goes into what is belief. When you say that I know something or I believe something, he, he kind of goes this whole um, thing. There's a, a guy, one of his, his mentors is St. Cardinal John Henry Newman. He wrote a book called Grammar of Ascent, which is like how do we come to believe things. And he says, basically, you know, just think about the expression, Great Britain is an island. You know, why do you believe that? You've never went around the whole thing. You've never seen it all for yourself. It's, there's a whole sense of hunches, intuitions, testimonies, historical records, you know, that go into this. Like, why do we believe the earth is round? You know, why do we believe certain things? So, like, his point is, is that when you say that, you know, atheism is scientific and it's rational. Everything is just kind of clear cut. He's like, you know, there's a lot more that goes into believing anything than just this hard core, you know, core testing data. So what Newman is trying to show, he says, is that this rationalistic spirit between supposed knowledge and belief is largely imaginary. In point of fact, we assent to religious claims in the same way that we assent to practically any other kind of claim through a combination of arguments, gut feeling, the testimony of others, intuition, and personal experience, a range of evidence that has both rational and irrational ways of knowing. The objects of religious dissent is different than the object of non-religious assent, but the manner of thinking in both the cases is fundamentally the same. So the people that says, you know, that say, unless I see it, I can't believe it. You're like, you don't operate that way, right? If someone says you, I don't believe, or I only will believe in, in what I can see, then you would say, well, what would you say to a blind person? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't believe what I'm not sure of. Well, then never take an aspirin, get on an airplane, or turn on the ignition switch in your car. There's just not enough evidence. Not enough evidence for what? To coerce you? Then never develop a relationship, have a trusting uh, commitment, or certainly don't get married. 
Because how can you prove that this is going to work out, right? There's an element of faith there that we exercise. But unfortunately, again, you've got all these memes on the internet. When you, when you look at like science and religion, I mean, it's it's just interesting what the perception is. You're like, science, always doubt, always question. When challenged, it replies with evidence. Religion, no doubt, no question. When challenged, becomes hostile. You know, dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales, you know. So, I mean, um, this is kind of where we're at. But what I would like to point out with that um, years ago, we had a presentation at the parish and it was called Science Test Faith. And basically the guy uh, who came, there was a video that he made where they looked at three miraculous phenomena. You know, this woman who had the stigmata, this Eucharistic host that bled and this statue that was also uh, bleeding as well. And this has been scrutinized. That's why it's science test faith, because they kind of put these things to the test, so to speak. So I would say in terms of evidence, you know, like yesterday we just celebrated the great feast of Padre Pio. And I would say, okay, you want some scientific evidence, so to speak, that can't prove to you things, but it certainly can point in a certain direction. Read about Padre Pio, the great stigmatist priest. He had the wounds of Christ for 50 years in his hands, feet, and side. I would point him this video, Science Test Faith. I would say, look at the Shroud of Turin. You want to see where faith and science come together. I mean, there's some, I mean, I had read that, like, I don't, I don't know if this is true, but like 90% of all the folks that studied the Shroud became believers because they saw a real convergence of faith and reason together in their fields of study. And when you say came to a faith, realized that most of the people who came to study the Shroud were either people not of faith or even avowed mm-hmm. atheists. Yeah. Yeah, the photographer who took a lot of the pictures has a lot to say about that, too. He was basically an avowed atheist, and he, he just can't... He can't yeah, you know He doesn't what? have enough faith not to believe. Uh, Barry Schwartz is his name, and he gave a TED Talk on, on this about what finally put him over the edge on um, believing in it. And that's an amazing thing. Well, just a little quick footnote here is that he was like, why are the bloodstains on the shroud red? You know, and why, why wouldn't they fade away? Why are they a bright red? And he said that basically he... Uh, through research, this one uh, guy had said that, you know, basically when a, when a person suffers great trauma, that whatever oozes out, it's, it, it remains red, and it stays that way. It's like permanently set red. So this was a man who bled through great, intense trauma, and that it stayed this way for 2,000 years. And he says that was one of the things that kind of put him over the edge to say, this is the burial shroud of, of Christ. But So it's, it's amazing. The two most noted, studied relics of history are the shroud of Turin of Jesus, and Our Lady of Guadalupe, mm-hmm. of Mary. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And then so I would say study that, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and then look at, look at the, uh, all the miracles of Lourdes you know, in France, the apparitions there. They had to establish a medical bureau to investigate all, all these miracles. So I would say, first of all, if you want evidence, I mean, I, I hear these people spew out, there's no evidence for God. There's not a shred of evidence. I'd say, well, if you want some evidence, first I ask you, what, what would satisfy you? Sure. And then here's five starters to kind of get you on on the path. You the know? miracle route. Yeah, but in, in terms of like physical evidence in the sciences, you know, there's books out there right now, like this one that came out by Stephen Meyer. This guy is amazing, really. He, he has a book called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And he, he talks about how when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, how everything in the world is just right, it truly is a habitat for humanity. All this fine-tuning, to it's got to be so precise that a little bit left, a little bit right, a little bit tuned, a little bit untuned, then the world collapses. You know, uh, So there's a, 
There's a video called The Privileged Planet that's outstanding. Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for a Creator. This guy, uh, he was uh, the world's most notorious atheist, Anthony Flew. He wrote a book called There Is a God. After 50 years of atheism, he realized this fine-tuning argument. I say it's causing many to finally tune in. And it's it's interesting that even Christopher Hitchens, um, he said, he admitted, at some point, certainly we atheists are all asked, which is the best argument you come up against from the other side? He said, I think every one of us picks the fine-tuning as the most intriguing. So the fact that you're like, it is incomprehensible to ponder the factors necessary to have a life-permitting universe. So that's what these books are talking about. From the cell, the intricacy of the cell, which is a mini-micro massive machine to the cosmos and all the fine-tuning factors there. And everything in between is like, everything is a miracle. It really is. I was listening to NPR many years ago. I remember it was an evening. I was just doing some work around the house, and they were interviewing cosmologists and, um, and, and talking about their each particular individual fields. And at the end, the interviewer would say, but, you know, well, you, you don't believe in God. And, and for the first couple, there was always a pause. He says, yeah, but it's hard to believe that there – I am an atheist, but, boy, it's hard to believe that it could all come together and, and be like this without yeah, – and they couldn't even almost yeah. articulate it until yeah. the last guy said, I don't have enough faith to believe it happened by chance. <laughs> right, yeah. It would be as if – like one person said, as if a tornado – Flew through a junkyard and out came a, a fully, you know, functional assembled Boeing seven forty seven. It is that incomprehensible, you know, just to see like, and so it, it all points to a designer. But the fact that you look at all these evidences and you're like, you know, it, it doesn't take that big of a leap to say, I believe this is designed. There must be a designer. I see some intelligence and fine tuning. There must be a fine tuner. I see a, I see a big bang. It must be a big banger. You know, it's like. It takes a huge, huge bit of belief to believe that it is all by chance. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is St. Joseph Radio Presents coming to you live from St. Louis, Missouri, the Rome of the West. I'm your host, Peter Karutz. And we are with Sean Miller talking about reasons for God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, at one point in time, you know, I think last year I gave a talk on, on miracles. So I, I think, and it, so I have this memory aid, you know, M-I-R-A-C-L-E-S. And so the first M was matter, the miracle of matter, mankind, life. But then I, you think about, uh, this is more evidence, right? Images, icons, incorruptibles, R, resurrection, relics, A, apparitions, uh, C, conversions, the Catholic Church. Think about the miracles that have to go with the, the canonization process of saints. I mean, that's an amazing thing, too, in terms of evidence, that we, we're asking for a heavenly sign, or, or an earthly sign to confirm a heavenly reality with the canonization process. Um, L, Lord's phenomenon like levitation and whatnot, St. Joseph of Cupertino, various saints like that. E, Eucharistic miracles, exorcisms, and then S, stigmata, scripture and whatnot. But like, my conversion years ago kind of really took a big boost when I went over to Medjugorje. And, you know, whatever you believe or not about it, that what I love about it is that this is one of the most scientifically tested. So real quick, these are six kids who claim to have apparitions of Our Lady, you know, just like at Fatima and at Lourdes. Now, throughout these years, they've been massively 
scientifically tested and scrutinized. I mean, in in ways. I mean, it's it's amazing. There's a book called Medjugorje and the and the supernatural, and it goes through all these things. It's all online. All the different tests, you know, the decibels, the light, the pinpricks, the various brain monitors and whatnot, you know. And uh, I just think that's a sign for our times to say, here's something of people who are claiming visions from heaven, and they've been scrutinized in a way unprecedented in history, because this has been going on for like, you know, 30, 40 years now. But but I want to point to this website, MiracleHunter.com, is that here's a guy, like he took a class under Condoleezza Rice at Stanford, and she said, uh, she told all the students, become an expert at something. So he became an expert in miracles. So he's got this site, MiracleHunter.com, to uh, basically document all these things. Again, does this prove, <laughs> well, it certainly gives massive signs, you know, and it points. It gives evidence, you know. But again, if we don't want that data, we can say, ah. But I love this line that G.K. Chesterton said. He goes, rightly or wrongly, those who believe in miracles believe them on the basis of evidence. Rightly or wrongly, those who disbelieve in miracles refuse to believe them on the basis of faith. They're pre-ideological worldview that says miracles don't fit into my worldview, my philosophy. So therefore, out of hand, I refuse to see. There's like a guy, it's a great story. It's a book called uh, Lourdes by Emile Zola. And basically, he was a doctor that says, I want to go to Lourdes and see it myself. I want to see a miracle. If I don't see it, just like Thomas, I'm not going to believe. Well, guess what? He goes over and they take this this woman and she's got massive problems. I, I don't even know all what, what was wrong with her, but he saw her, he understood what she had, and then she was miraculously healed in front of his eyes. Wow. And he could not appropriate that into his system of thinking. So he rejected it, even though it was right there. So it tells a story that you think, you know, like, why didn't the Lord just do it, show it, miracle? But guess what? Miracles aren't necessarily going to convert someone. In fact, it'll make your culpability worse for seeing it. You know, like Father Tom and I, the priest I work with, we always say, oh, yeah, we want our little apparition. But guess what? Look at all the saints in history that had their little apparition. They also had an accompanying cross to go with it. Because once you kind of see, you're more culpable. So you think, well... Would you want to see the risen Lord knowing that, well, you might have your head cut off six months after the fact. You might be skinned alive. You know, would you say, well, uh, I can handle just kind of believing without seeing. But, you know, it's great. Like um, if there is a series on formed.org called The Search, it is with uh, Chris Stefanik, and it's and it's it's great. It's like a seven-part series. And, and session three is, is on faith and science. And he talks about all these great, how the church has supported science. It, it loves it's rationality. the patron of it, science. It, it, it is. Yeah, it's done more than probably any other organization throughout history to really support it. And then he talks about all the all the famous scientists, you know, like the founder of the Big Bang, Father Georges Lemaitre. He was a Belgian priest. You know, he was the one that discovered it and so forth. So he was friends with Einstein, you know, or or uh, Father Gregory Mendel, all, all these guys, and they kind of list Copernicus. There's, yeah, there's like 35 different craters on the moon named after uh, Jesuit uh, priests, you know, who, who who did the science. In fact, there's a Vatican observatory in, uh, what, Arizona, right? Tucson, I think. So that we, we've got this, like, we are not opposed or contrary to science. We, we love it. In fact, you know, this recent James Webb telescope that's going up, it's going to be amazing to ponder what we're going to see more about the complexity and amazing gift of the universe. So 
John Paul II said it best. He wrote a, a document called Fides et Ratio on Faith and, and Reason. He goes, Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth and a word to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. So we say these, these are two wings, is that I can open myself to know the living God through reason, through revelation, through science, through faith. It's, it's a both and. So that if both would kind of understand how each other operates, we know that truth can't contradict truth. So sometimes we're meant to think that the more that we know in, in science and reason, somehow it's going to eclipse God. And it's, it's just the opposite is the case. They say God wrote, you know, authored two books, right? The book of nature and the book of scripture. One's a natural revelation, one's supernatural. And we learn about God through both. So I can look at you, Peter, and say, I can see that you're six foot two, you weigh, what, 150? No. <laughs> no, 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 you can know about somebody, but I can't know you unless you reveal yourself. Right. And so that's the gift of, of what God has, has done, both reason and with revelation. So um, just to kind of conclude in our closing time here, um, one thing as a teaser for next time is we're going to be getting to St. Thomas's five ways, but um, it's amazing to ponder the fact that God has left these footprints. And the reason that we can know God is because we're made in his image. We share in a rational nature. In fact, remember the text in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Well, the term word is, is the, we, you know, we, we get the word logos. That, that means really it's like the intellect, the speech, the rationality of God. Through God's reason, the world was made. So in Colossians 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus. For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Meaning that this world was created through the rationality of God. It's ordered reason. And so now we can discover it. We can know it. We can be in the rational mind of God. This is why science happens. This is why science came out in the West. Because we realize that this was made by the ordered mind of God, of which me as a human being rationally can share in. So I think the more that we study, the more that we see these, these, uh, this rationality of God, the more I think it'll lead us to faith. So, so for me, I always like to look at it in terms of this term explanatory power. When you, when you look at all the reasons, all the miracles, all the signs, all the science, you know, your question is, where does the evidence lead? And to me, the best explanation of the data is it leads to God. So like one person said, when I looked at the evidence, I didn't have enough faith to be an atheist. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, and open your hearts to, to miracles. You know, I, I, my, my mom, I remember in her old age, she had all the pictures of us lined up on this one particular table in the living room. And she said, I was worried about you. I came home and I saw the light on and it said, God, God said you were okay. I told that to a Monsignor, a good friend of mine, and he says, I spent a, a sabbatical in at Medjugorje, and I, I just didn't feel transformed. So in this last walk with a priest, he says, what was the most intimate moment you had? He says, when I saw the light at the, that mountain right at the top, when I first got here, I remembered of the great faith I had as a child. The priest turned to him and said, there's never been a light on that mountain. <laughs> so open your hearts to, to God's will and to God's presence in you. He's after us. Uh, and this is another way of us preparing ourselves to help those who may be struggling. Come back. See us next week. It's Dr. Brian Gazard, and you're going to love it about the family and faith. Have a great week. God bless you. 
You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Well, you know, I was just telling Sean about this book by Bryson. He's a British humorist that's called A History of Nearly Everything. And he goes through time and basically says what the contemporary wisdom is for science. And you look back and you think, these people are out of their flipping tree that they believe that. But that's what we believe, many people believe today, that science has reached its pinnacle and all that there is to be known is known today. It's not. Mm. The only thing that we know today is that God is here and exists and created everything. And as science progresses, we seem to be getting close to him. As you said, uh, what did John Paul say? Faith and reason are like two wings that come to the knowledge of God. How does a dove fly with one, one wing? It doesn't even make sense. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. Come back to see us next time.